Hello and welcome to the Bombay Film Story. My name is Mayank Shekhar and this is where we explore Bombay and films through people who've shaped both and been shaped by them. My guest today has been an actor and star for decades, but not just an actor. In fact, over years, he's had so many lives and professions that it, we really, really lost count. Copywriter, model, ad filmmaker, stage slash theater actor, journalist, once even a Buddhist monk. But we're going to try and stick to his Bombay film story. It's going to be absolutely impossible, but that's the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Kabir Bedi. Thank you so much, Kabir, for joining us. Hi, Mank. Lovely to talk to you and uh, lovely to be on your program. Kabir, uh, there's, of course, a world in Bombay for you, a, a fascinating world before Bombay, an equally fascinating world after Bombay. And they're all kind of interconnected in some form. Quick one. Uh, firstly, when did you arrive in the city, Kabir? I arrived in the city from Delhi uh, in 1960, late 1966. Okay. And um, that's when I began my sojourn in Bombay. I'd come to Bombay actually to become a film director. Mm -hmm. The idea was to direct films. And since there were no film schools at the time, I decided to join advertising. And I joined Lintas uh, with uh, Jason Dakuna and Alec Padamsi as my bosses. And then I, I worked for uh, Ogilvy Mather, in those days known as uh, Benson's, where Frank Simois was my first boss, and then Ranjan Kapoor was my colleague. And all these people all went on to become legends in advertising. And that's my first reason to come to Bombay. I want to sh learn my craft as a director making ad films. And that's what I did for these agencies. Well, you know, I have to uh, let the listeners know that no matter how amazing this conversation turns out to be, how great an episode of this podcast uh, turns out to be, uh, it will not match Kabir's book, uh, Stories I Must Tell, because it has fascinating anecdotes and accounts. Very sorry, Kabir, if, if I make you recount some of them uh, in this conversation. And the reason why I'm saying that is because, you know, personally for me as a journalist, the story that, that was most fascinating is why you got to Bombay. And the fact that right before that, you were a reporter with the All India Radio and you actually snagged what would be the greatest interview done by any Indian journalist at the time. You <laughs> met John, Paul, George and Ringo at the height of Beatlemania. How did you get to know that the Beatles are in Delhi to begin with? Well, the Beatles had um, been in Manila mm -hmm. and they had trouble in Manila with the government and they were made an unscheduled stopover in Delhi on their way back to London. Mm. Uh, and the minute they arrived, of course, you know, in certain ways, our cities are small cities. Uh, they stay in a hotel, people talk, and suddenly everybody knows the Beatles are in town. And I was this cub reporter with All India Radio because it is my way, for, way of paying my way through college. <clears throat> and I was the most avid Beatles fans imaginable. So I was determined to get to them. And I persuaded my bosses to give me the uh, All India Radio badge and a tape recorder. And I set off to get them. And I basically, it's a lovely story, but I'll tell you the essence of it. I, I, I pressured Brian Epstein, their manager, into giving me the interview by saying that the government of India wanted this interview. Uh, now, technically, I was right. All India Radio was government of India, part of government of India. So uh, the government wanted this interview. 
And he just got into trouble with uh, the government in the Philippines. And I told him, I'm a big Beatles fan and there'll be a lot of trouble if you don't give me this interview. And eventually that's how I got the interview. So <clears throat> there was a lot of drama leading up to that, which I won't get into detail here. A lot of drama during the interview, a lot of drama after the interview. Uh, the drama after the interview brought me to Bombay because really it was the way that All India Radio treated that interview. They, they had no idea what I gave them. Um, they broadcast it without any fanfare announcement. And worst of all, as I discovered a few weeks later, they had taped my interview to record another program. Now, they had broadcasting gold. They could have played it for ages, but they were hamstrung for cash and they couldn't afford to buy new tapes all the time. So they kept taping over the old tapes. You know, but, but what, did they not know mm. who the Beatles were? Like they did never, like did not understand how huge this is? No, I'm sure the bosses knew, the bosses right. knew who the Beatles were. Right, right. But the boys in the back room who have to tape things and give tape recorders to reporters to go and tape something, another interview, another concert, another something, they had no idea. So they just thought this is another program we have to tape over and, you know, life goes on. So that so outraged me that I realized I couldn't work with these people again. And that made me think about what I really wanted to do in, with my life and going through all the options because I, I was from St. Stephen's. So St. Stephen's was like the breeding ground of IS officers and IFS officers, IPS officers, people in corporate jobs. And I thought, no, I want to be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> with 700 rupees in my pocket, I set off for Bombay. So that was the beginning of my career. That is the kind of daring of youth that thinks you can conquer the world with nothing in your pocket, just your talent and your vision and your hopes, etc. Surprisingly, I made it happen. But it was a, a, a tumultuous journey getting there. You've had <clears throat> unconventional parenting in that sense. Um, you know, your father was a philosopher, but, you know, communist, very revolutionary ideas. Your mother eventually became uh, the highest rank Buddhist nun. Uh, but, you know, was also Gandhian, British woman who fought against the British uh, during, uh, during the Raj. I mean, did they have a certain <clears throat> vision of what you should do in life? Were they okay with you just moving to Bombay with 700 rupees? You know, Mike, I was blessed with the most extraordinary parents. Mm. I mean, these were extraordinary individuals, even if they were not my parents, mm. because of what they'd sacrificed for India's freedom, the circumstances in which they lived, insecurities they faced, they had no money. And they were idealists. And coming from Oxford, where they both were on scholarship, they could have got the best jobs in India. So these were people that lived for their ideals. And they gave me so much in terms of values and inner strength and ability to face adversity, uh, all those things. And they never, ever uh, interfered in my career choices. Mm. Uh, they never said, become this, do this. They said, you'll find your way. Um, they sacrificed a lot to give me a good education. So I was sent to a Delhi public school, uh, Sherwood and Nenithal, St. Stephen's in Delhi, even a year in Shantaniketan to water my Indian roots. But when I told my father, you know, I'm, I'm heading for Bombay, uh, he never asked me, how are you going to do it? He didn't have money. You know, so, but his attitude was, you know, follow your heart. They gave me the courage to be different. They gave me the courage to say, you don't have to take the trodden path. You can take the road less traveled. And for that, I am eternally grateful to them. 
They were remarkable people. There's a whole chapter in my book on their lives, not just their achievements, but also this incredible relationship between the two, where even after my mother became a Buddhist nun and my father became a New Age philosopher in Italy, divided by continents, how this couple remained in their strange spiritual way, soulmates to the end of their lives. Speaking of uh, schools, uh, Kabir, and that's not, a, that's not a school you mentioned among all that you did. Uh, one of those Auntie Gobas, if I'm not mistaken. No, the first school I went to was Tyndall Bisco in Srinagar. Okay. Um, that was where my father was, went after independence because he was a good friend of Sheikh Abdullah. In fact, he wrote the Constitution of Kashmir and he did many great things. But then he had a difference of opinion with Sheikh Saab when Sheikh Abdullah decided to toy with the idea of independence. He said, I can't be part of anything that separates India again, and left and came down to Delhi. In Delhi, uh, the second school I went to was Mrs. Gorba School, which was a very uh, wonderful Montessori school run by this mercurial, but very kind and creative German lady. And that's where I became friends with Rajiv and Sanjay Gandhi. That's what I wanted to get at, yes. Tell and me that, about that friendship. It's, it's a fascinating story of hanging around with people who eventually became, well, at least one person who eventually became the most powerful man legally, and another person who became perhaps the most powerful man, well, not on paper, but in reality. These were these two, Sanjay Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi, were your buddies growing up. They were, and we were just a bunch of kids fooling around. I mean, okay. there, there was no way I could have imagined that Sanjay and Rajiv and Auntie Indu, Indira Gandhi, right. who was just the official hostess of her father, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, would become, two of them would become Prime Ministers, and one would become unofficially the most powerful man in India. In those days, we were just playing in, in these large rooms, which had these, they had this wonderful set of trains that ran on tracks, and it covered the whole room. It was like a train system with signals that went up and down and things they could control remotely. It was very advanced for the time. And we enjoyed playing on that and made cars and sets of Meccano and we rode horses um, and we attended each other's birthday parties and we were just friends. And I was more friends with Rajiv than, than, than Sanjay because Sanjay was more introverted. But um, Rajiv was always this easy, laid-back, garrulous kind of chap. Cut two, when he becomes prime minister, uh, I go and see him and he ushers me in past <clears throat> a room full of waiting ministers and he leads me into the office. He closes the door behind me. He expands his arms, holds out his arms to show the expanse of the prime minister's office and he says, Kaha paskai yaar? <laughs> I said, Rajiv, he's the Prime Minister of India, man. Get serious. He said, don't you give me that. Everybody asks me all day to get serious. You know, <laughs> yeah, my buddy, sit down, let's talk about old times. And we talked about old times and future ideas. That was the kind of relationship. I didn't see that much of them in my college years because I was busy studying and working at all India radio, trying to pay my way through college. Um, but I did visit Sanjay and his... Um, uh, what he called his factory, which was really a glorified garage, um, where he drove me around on this little car with uh, uh, that sort of function, which was a glorified golf cart. But he knew, he knew it was not the car he wanted. He was trying, he was experimenting. And because of Sanjay not succeeding in his, his experiments, he tied up with Maruti Suzuki, which, re which eventually le led by default 
to allowing other foreign car makers in India, and we moved beyond the four dull cars we had on the Indian roads, the Ambassador, the Standard Herald, the Fiat, and one other. So we owe Sanjay Gandhi a lot for bringing cars and modern cars to India, despite all that was alleged against him, his deeds or misdeeds, but he did provide a pivotal role in terms of giving India its um, cars. And I must say, I, for all their alleged deeds and misdeeds, when they both passed away, I really mourned the loss of childhood friends because we had been friends. Both tried in very tragic circumstances. Rajiv was assassinated by a Tamilian, um, a Sri Lankan Tamilian, and uh, Sanjay in a stunt plane um, because he was always a daredevil. He just took it a step too far, as he did with some many things in his life. Absolutely. I think yours would be the only other uh, Bombay film connection that I can think of with Rajiv Gandhi. The other, of course, being uh, Amitabh Bachchan. Uh, Amitabh and Rajiv were great friends too. And in fact, Ajitab also shows up quite often when you read up about them and, and their childhood. Ajitab used to be friends with uh, Sanjay Gandhi, if I'm not mistaken. Were you, did you know Amitabh around that time, Amitabh Bachchan, because of a common connection in terms yes, of Yes, yes. I used to see Amit. Um, and I used to see Bunty, Bunty much more because Amit actually was in the school that uh, Sherwood, uh, right. as was Bunty. Amitabh left Sherwood before I, I joined. You have seen it to me. Um, Bunty was my class fellow. So I got to know Bunty. Bunty being Ajitabh I, I got to know him right. very well and we remained friends. And <clears throat> together we were uh, together with Bunty a lot of times at the Prime Minister's house. Uh, playing with Rajiv and, and Sanjay. He was one of the playmates. The other was uh, uh, a chap called Adil, who was the son of uh, Yunus, who was a confidant of the Gandhi family. But there was another very interesting connection between uh, Amitabh and me. My mother used to, during the freedom struggle, my parents lived in pre-partition Lahore. Lahore was the capital of undivided Punjab. Mm -hmm. And they had lived in these huts where I was actually born, where all these leftists would gather. But to make money, my mother was professor of English at the Fatishan College in, in, in Lahore. One of her colleagues was Teji Suri, and they became very good friends. And Teji Suri, in fact, um, um, was being wooed very ardently by an army major. But she chose this kurta pajama wearing uh, poet called Harvanshrai Bachchan who then went on to become one of the giants of Hindi literature. And she would, Taiji would actually bring my, take my elder brother mm -hmm. uh, to my mother when my mother was imprisoned by the British. Uh, so there was a close friendship there between them. And Taiji became the mother of uh, Amitabh Bachchan. But, and I knew Auntie Taiji very well, but really speaking, after I came to Bombay, I just lost contact with them. You know, I find it fascinating how so many people who become so successful in completely varied fields sometimes tend to have a common connection. Tend, you know, they've met somewhere. Like, I think even in your case, we've of course spoken about the Delhi part of it, but when you come to Bombay and there's a Jew gang you speak of, uh, you know, and this, this amazing world uh, of Bollywood and Bombay films that's, you know, I, I want you to go like in depth into that world for sure. But before we get there, when you come to Bombay, because you've chosen advertising as a profession, I'm assuming, uh, Kabir, that you would have been in the southern side of the city because that's really where yeah, the advertising uh, right. situation was. When I worked in advertising, I first had a, 
paying guest accommodation in a building called White House, mm-hmm. uh, which is on Valkeshwar Road, um, Marine Drive going up to the top of Malabar Hill. Uh, that's where the sensor board had its offices too. Um, but there's a beautiful still does actually yeah, still that, does. There was a beautiful uh, flat right on the sea at the bottom of it, and I had a lovely high ceilinged um, paying guest accommodation there. And then I moved up to the top of Malabar Hill, uh, house a flat called uh, apartment called Bayview. That's where Prathama and I had our first home. Uh, but then I decided after Puja was born that I didn't want my child to grow up in the cemented sidewalks of, uh, of South Bombay. I, I wanted the open spaces of Juhu. So we moved to Juhu. And um, that became sort of the hub of what was then called the Juhu Gang. Uh, actually, there were many Juhu Gangs, but our gang was sort of Shekhar Kabur, Shabana Azmi, Parveen Babi, Jani Denzongpa, Parikshit Sani, Neelam Johar, daughter of I.S. Johar, and Ketan Anand and uh, uh, Vivek Anand, um, Jalal Aga, a number of sort of, sort of Satyadev Dubey became an honorary member of the gang. But then there was this other Juhu with, where you had uh, uh, the Khan brothers, mm-hmm. Feroz Khan, Sanjay Khan, Samir, and Akbar. And they were a dashing bunch, um, real fun to hang out with. But they weren't the kind of laid back chillers that we were. Uh, we were sort of more part of the feeling of the 1960s of the whole, you know, um, uh, counterculture movement. We were the original bohemians of Bollywood. And that's what, uh, uh, what we uh, chose to do. Break tradition, uh, push the envelope, um, admire the anti-war protests in the West, admire the uh, counterculture movement. Um, listen to our gods, the, the Beatles, the Doors, uh, um, Simon and Garfunkel, the Pink Floyd. Um, these were the seminal bands of the 60s that, that came up and which we loved and adored and heard their music. The Doors, um, so many wonderful sounds uh, and so many wonderful evenings. Um, all in this ambience of, of Juhu, which very much felt like Goa at the time. And I remember Satyadev once being on the beach with Satyadev Dubey and a bunch of friends. And we saw that it was night and there was this, must have been a plane that was passing, but it was passing very low and we couldn't hear it. We could just see this light. And somebody said, that's an alien spaceship. And Dubey ran towards them saying, take me with you, take me with you. (laughs) (laughs) And Dubey went on to win, you know, uh, the National Theatre Awards and uh, the Sahitya Academy Awards and was a seminal force in in, in the theatre and a wonderful man. He is the biggest influence in the creation of Amrish Puri as an actor because Amrish did his most amazing theatre work with Satyadev Dubey. And working with Dubey, he certainly hammered out the best uh, created the best actors because of the discipline that he had and the kind of plays he chose. Mm-hmm. So he was an influence far bigger than his name at the time. He grew to something quite amazing. Well, I forgot to mention Mahesh Bhatt was yeah. also very much part of this right. gang that we, this Bohemian gang that we uh, were part of. In fact, Mahesh cast me in his first film as a director, Manzile right. or Behan. 
and that is a film which did not release because it was considered uh, uh, too scandalous perhaps in terms well of it was a it was a very revolutionary theme because it was a story of two convicts played by me and uh, an actor called gulshan uh, who for various reasons are trying to get across a mythical border to escape and with them comes this prostitute and in the course of the story one man sleeps with her then uh, legions is changed she sleeps with the other man and then she gets pregnant and we don't know whose child it is mm. and this was the theme of this film mm. so the censor board absolutely banned, said no can't do it then since i'd come from south bombay i knew the whole art and culture set and all the journalists i organized a screening for them i said this is the atrocity being inflicted on freedom of speech but you know the culture crowd said this is a commercial bollywood film it wasn't arty enough for that taste and they refused to support it the only man that agreed to support it and said come with me i'll march with you to the censor office was playwright vijay tendulkar Mm. He was the only man for whom it was a matter of principle that a film with a theme like this was being banned because the censors didn't agree um, with it on a moral basis. Eventually, they mangled it with a thousand cuts, released it, and the picture flopped. So um, that was a rather unfortunate beginning for. So it did release, though. But it released so badly cut that the film made no sense anymore. Oh. And whatever logic there was to that very bold story. was simply scissored out of the film and mahesh also um used to be an assistant of raj khosla mm. and raj khosla gave me my first big hit in with kachhe dhage he cast me with vinod khanna mm. and we were mortal enemies on screen mm. and who became friends and then sacrificed themselves together off screen we became lifelong friends because of um, kachedhage and raj khosla was a director who had given devanand five of his biggest blockbusters and was one of the most highly regarded directors but because of that i became lifelong friends with vinod and vinod became an even better friend when in the course of his career he renounced bollywood and he went to oregon to stay with guru osho and i was in hollywood those days so he would come down to hollywood uh, to hollywood and 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 meet me and chat with me have lots of dinners with me and give me all the gossip that was going on in the ashram in oregon and the gossip actually is the topic of a whole documentary That's series right. on netflix called right. wild wild country something like that yeah. and all that happened because of osho's manager and the problems it created for him and the community etc but it was ironic because here mahesh bhat also had become a disciple of osho mm. but he renounced osho whereas vinod renounced bollywood for osho right. and went to <laughs> oregon and in fact became one of his biggest defenders when he finally came back to india and we had that bond we always had a very kind of spiritual bond in fact i was supposed to see vinod 3 days before he passed away and then something came up and there was a problem i couldn't go and the next thing i knew i was attending his funeral so he was a great guy and ironically vinod also was my mp because he used to as mp for gurdaspur in punjab mm. 
And my ancestral village is Dera Baba Nanak, which falls in Gurdaspur, which is just um, an hour and a half drive from Amritsar. So there were lots of links between Vinod and me throughout our lives. And our paths crossed on many continents. And you know, when he came back from the ashram in Oregon, he was broke. He took a small room in the um, automobile club on Baraba Hill, one room. And from there, he rebuilt his whole film career. Wow, I did not yeah. know that. To the extent that he then bought a beautiful flat for himself in Il Palazzo, etc., which is where he stayed. Um, but his was a real comeback story too. You're listening to Bombay Film Story with Mayank Shekhar. I must also let the uh, listeners know, and I'm pretty sure they do by now, uh, but you are actually a direct descendant of Guru Nanak, the founder of That's Sikhism. Right. Were you spiritually inclined, uh, and especially given the company you kept while in Bombay? Um, I know that there's a whole lot of sex, drugs and rock and roll, but there is also a lot of spirituality uh, that happened in the 60s uh, in that whole flapar uh, generation. Isn't it true? No, absolutely. It was a kind of um, social reawakening. It was a, a religious reawakening in many ways, because suddenly Eastern religions became important in the West. Uh, even Indian music, um, right. Ravi Shankar became the guru of George Harrison and the influence of the Indian music was felt in the Beatles. In fact, George Harrison then brought the Beatles back to India for um, a very productive period in their life to the ashram of, of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Rishikesh. And they had some of the most creative moments because when you are at the height of your power in terms of as a performer, as a creative artist, etc., the demands on your time are so immense that it's very hard to find the time for creativity. Mm. And they had exhausted themselves with you know, the material they created, etc., and the constant demands for new material. Their manager, Brian Epstein, had died six months before that. So when they came to Rishikesh, it was like, oh God, we can breathe again. Um, and in that breathe again phase, uh, they started jamming again like they were, like the band got together originally. It was a, um, a creative uh, resurgence for them. And that um, influence of the Beatles was there. So the importance of yoga and meditation, etc., suddenly became important because the hippies embraced it, the flower generation embraced it. I always had Sikhism as part of my roots, Buddhism as part of my roots, Sikhism from my father, Buddhism from my mother. But I was also I had this great spiritual curiosity um, as to what is the truth, what really is the truth of our existence? Is there one God? Are there many? Is there one soul? Are there rebirths? Is there destiny? Is there free will? All Where did we all come from? How did it all begin? So my spiritual quest also went on through this period. Uh, I used to listen to Jiddu Krishnamurti at the Constitution Club in Delhi. I used to hear him at the JJ School of Art in when he came to Mumbai, even at the home of my friend Asit Chanmal, where I had a much smaller session with him. And I even met him in California, where I had a wonderful meeting with him, which I've described in my book. And he was a man that attacked all religious orthodoxy, all systems, saying they're only corrupting your mind. You will not find truth through any system, any path, any religion. So he was like a purgative, clearing your mind of all your existing beliefs. Then there was... Osho. Then there was many other gurus along the way that I met, the books I read. For me, 
that spiritual part of me has always been there. And that spiritual inquiry continued even as a child in the 50s. I became a monk in, in, in Burma. Mm. So that has always been part of me and has always continued. There's a very strong spiritual side to you, a very strong intellectual side to you. Um, and I'm looking at you as a young man in Bombay. You made a name for yourself in theatre. You've done advertising, of course. You moved to the Jew side, which is really the Bollywood side. That's a completely different world, isn't it, uh, Kabir, in terms of the, the thinking, what they yeah. believe to be expression. Were you like shocked or was there a complete, uh, you know, two sides to you, one that you saw uh, before you, which was the world of Bollywood in the 70s, um, and the one that was inside you, which was, which was you know, a, a more questioning mind in that sense? Well, you know, uh, the spiritual side went on. I never seriously thought of joining a monastic order or anything. I, I was just searching for what, what is true in our existence. But it was a huge risk for me to join Bollywood. I could have had a perfectly good career in advertising. Because not only was I making ad films, not only was I working with the best agencies, I was also at that time India's best known male model. Ashoba Day, uh, then Raja Daksha, uh, was the other female supermodel along with a few others. Uh, and I used her in some of my ad films. Joining Bollywood was a huge risk for me. That was a leap of faith. That was, which said, okay, you said you want to be a director in advertising. You've reached your limit. If you go up, you will stop making films. If you want to keep making films, and then I joined Bollywood and acting began and the acting never stopped because then the Italians came and all kinds of things happened there. So that was um, a real leap of faith because you're leaving guaranteed security for the insecurity of the film industry. And believe me, it's the most insecure industry in the world. Give me some examples of these insecurities. Uh, I mean, in terms of what you what you saw, everybody in this industry is insecure. The ones who are the most most successful are afraid of losing their success. Mm. Three, four flop films, and suddenly you're yesterday's man. The people that don't have that success are insecure because they're not getting the roles that will make them that mm. person. Your pay is irregular. Your bills are regular. Um, you're always dependent on somebody wanting you for a film unless you're a filmmaker, in which case you have to find somebody who will finance your film. It's a very insecure industry because it's dealing in the business of emotion. It's dealing with <clears throat> selling intangibles and there's no guarantee of success. I have seen so many stars come and go on three continents. I've seen so many filmmakers come and go on three continents in the course of my career. Anyone who survives 50 years in this business deserves an Oscar for survival. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> it's the most insecure business. In but in that case, you've got your Oscar already. Uh, I've got my Oscar this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what I also meant was that in terms of a cultural shock, let's say you're meeting a, a, a producer at the time. I mean, you would probably hear some really bizarre stories uh, in terms of scripts being offered to you or just take us through some of the the corny people, I mean, we'll call them corny only because we don't know them personally, but like some mm. odd balls that you would meet in the 70s. Uh, Bollywood, do you remember some of these uh, stories, Kabir? The very first film that I was offered was a film called Halchal. And this was by a producer called O.P. Ralan. O.P. Ralan had just made a film called Pool or Patthar that made Tharminda a big star. And he called me to the office and said, I want to sign you for my film. I said, yes, sir. I'm delighted, honored. 
what's the story about? You are asking me for a story? Me? Just give me an idea, sir. Do you know who you're asking? I made Dharmendra a hero. And you are asking me? You, a rank newcomer, asking me for a story? Don't be stupid. You want to do my film? Yes, I want to do your film. So I um, signed the film. I thought I was a leading man as far as a hero. Right. Turned out I wasn't. Ronan was the hero. <laughs> and his heroine was the legendary Helen, who was famous for her dance. Zina Taman was in the same film. She was also brought in, probably with the same power of sign my film. Film didn't work. But neither I nor Zina's got all the blame for it. Because we weren't the hero and heroine. That's the hero. But yeah. I must say, Ralan was a wonderful man. He was a man with a big heart. He was very particular about that I say the Hindi dialogues exactly as he wrote them. And they weren't easy. Mm. So he was very patient with me there. More importantly, when I got to a jam, I got to a traffic accident in Bandra. And the police tried to pin the blame on me. I called Ralan in panic. And he came and fought with the police for an hour before they let me off. I was very sad to hear that he fell on hard times mm-hmm. towards the end of his days. And I'll always be grateful to him for producing my first released film. Were there other oddballs that you remember? Things have changed greatly here. Today in Bollywood, you're actually seeing scripts. People are presented something and they... Right. Those days, all you got was a narration. Mm-hmm. And you better remember that narration perfectly because you'll never, ever get that narration again. <laughs> And the film will be shot over two years, not in order, and everybody was given narrations and then given scenes just before you go onto the, onto the set. Now, there's a reason for that. Because films took so long to make, they were afraid that a script would fall into the wrong hands and somebody else would use the twist in the climax for their film. So to prevent that happening, no scripts were around. Secondly, when you narrate to an actor, you narrate to him in a way whereby he feels, hey, this is my film. And you narrate it to three actors, you get three actors, each one thinks it's my film. And then you come onto the sets and the problems begin. You know, narration then you realize was, the producer is the hero. <laughs> that's what happened to me. The way a lot of films were made for many, many years. Like I said, today things are more modern. People give you a very clear script, if not a script, a very detailed synopsis. And you get a good idea of what you're getting into. And it's good. Bollywood has moved in leaps and bounds from, from those days, not just technologically, not just uh, in terms of their budgets, but also in terms of the kind of films they're making and the way they make them. But also, you know, scripts can change. For instance, there was a film called Kurban. The producer came to me and said, you and Sunil, that two giants clash between you two. And I was thrilled because I had adored Sunil Dutt since Mother India. I you know, was in awe of the man. To bed opposite him was like, wow. A film called Kurban. Before the shooting, they said, I said, Salim Salman, which film so they went to sign up Salman and they signed a girl, wonderful girl called Ayesha Churka. Um, and the filming started in installments, as it used to be in those days. During the shooting of this film, four other films of Salman became super hits, right? Immediately, scenes were added for the lovers, 
many songs were added for the lovers. It became a film about the two lovers. Sunilath and I became background music. <laughs> so, so much for Clash of Giants. <laughs> well, you did 70 films though uh, in, in, in Bombay. Um, yeah. Were you at any point frustrated by the whole system, by the way it worked, by narration and the change of story when you land up on set and other things uh, around it? Fact is, firstly, I wasn't here for almost 25 years of my life. Mm. So how could Bollywood cast me? Secondly, I will never diss Bollywood because Bollywood launched me. They made me an all India name. Mm. I was one of the actors that was known when the Italians came into town and I was known because of Bollywood. So they gave me my start in life. They were the people that led to my getting the opportunity with the Italians, which made me a superstar in Europe. Plus, they've always given me immense respect. Also, Mayank, in the middle of my Hollywood years, Rakesh Roshan calls me and says, I've got a film for you where I want you to be the hero. And I said, why me? What happened to all the other Bollywood heroes? And he said, no, Kabir, the thing is, in my film, the hero becomes a villain and no hero will play it. Mm. And if I put a villain in the role, there'll be no surprise. You're the only one who can be a hero and a villain, villain convincingly. And so I came back. Of course, I also came back and running because I heard he cast Rekha in the role. And Rekha at that time had become a, a really iconic actress, even then. She was a National Award winner. She got her second Filmfare Award for Poon Bhari Mang. And she was a highly accomplished actress. In fact, I knew uh, Rekha uh, when she first came to Bombay, because we all lived in the same beach house society. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was one floor beneath me on the left. Jaya Bachchan was two floors beneath me on the right. So you can work out the significance of that. But uh, <laughs> Rekha, in spite of her success with Savan Bhadon, um, was disregarded by the industry. They said, oh, the, she's fat, she's plump, she's dark, South Indian. They didn't take her seriously. But film by film, Rekha converted herself from the ugly duckling into the white swan. And by the time Rakesh Roshankaste and Kundariman, she was one of Hollywood's biggest stars. So that's what lured me back to India to shoot in the Bollywood film in the middle of my Hollywood years. And it became my biggest Bollywood hit. So there's much I have to thank Bollywood for. Of course, there is mm -hmm. Sandhya Khan that made you uh, the huge star in, in Europe. And how this is uh, an Italian legend that kids in Italy over generations have read. But there is an Indian man sitting in Juhu Beach House who gets to play this part. Mm -hmm. One, why would they not cast an Italian person for a character that is so iconic to begin with, why would they reach you? Or how did you reach there? Uh, just take us through this, Kabir. Sandra Khan was an iconic character. It was written by a writer called Emilio Salgari in the last mm -hmm. century. A man who wrote the most amazing adventure stories set in Asia, South America, Russia, the North Pole. He was read by every Italian child. He was... Uh, all the South American writers, uh, Borges and Pablo Neruda and Isabel Allende, all had read uh, Salgari. 
Even Che Guevara said he read 62 books of Emilio Salgari. Mm. So he was an iconic writer. They had made two films on Sandro Khan before I played the role, which didn't make any great waves. But Sandro Khan was an Asian pirate who fought the British. So he needed an Asian actor for it. And Sergio Solima, who was the director, had this vision of, it, of, of doing it as a television series rather than as a film. And that was a masterstroke because in that you could tell the whole Sandro Khan stories um, and he could tell it. And he was a great screenplay writer because he'd done films with Charles Bronson, various other big uh, Western stars, plus um, uh, Italian stars. He fought for it. He wrote the screenplay. He got an Oscar-winning art director. He got brand new musicians who provided an almost pop score to a classical film. And they were looking for a nation actor. So they came to Bombay as the first city as part of a six-nation tour they were on to find the best actor in Asia to play Sandoka. And the first actor they met in the first city they came to was me. And there were two reasons that helped. One was I had a beard. Because after Kachi Dhage, where I grew my beard, the producer said to me, Sir, don't shave your beard. Aapke liye bahuti lucky hai. Daadi ya prakhi hai. So I kept my beard. That enabled me, that made me look very much like the drawings that Salgari had made of his classical novels. So I looked like Sandokan. But that didn't get me the role. What got me the role was the auditions I did. They asked me to come to Rome at my own cost to do, do the audition. And first I'd bristle off and do a audition at my cost. You've got to have some respect for Indian actors. But then I thought, no, this is something which could be a great opportunity for me. Because what I did not want to do in Bollywood was be a singing, dancing star. I admire singing and dancing. I love it. I watch it. I can't do it. And then I realized that all the leading men have to sing and dance. So I realized I had to travel abroad if I wanted to career as an actor. And that led to my saying, yes, I'll come to Rome at my cost and I'll do the audition. And then I put everything I had into that audition. Riding, swimming, dramatic scenes, action scenes, everything they tested me on. And I got through. I don't know who else they tested from Asia, but I got the role. And it led to great startup. You kind of have an idea that it's going to be a big production, clearly, because you're willing to spend your own money to go and audition for this <clears> part <throat> in Rome. The sense I get is, if there was an equivalent of a show like that in India, the level of response it got in Italy, what Sandok Khan got in Italy, would be, say, a Mahabharat or a, or a Ramayan, which is... Like literally like a, like a traffic stopper kind of show where people are just not on the streets, they're sitting and watching. Now, you are technically in that sense, and maybe maybe even more than that, you're like you're like the Arun Govil at that moment hmm. because you're literally God for, for, for the masses in Italy. Did you see that coming? No, we, we, we knew this thing was likely to be a success because it was not just Italian. It was produced by the Italians, the Germans, and the French. Hmm. So it was a European co-production. Right. And we all felt very good about it. We knew it would be successful. Nobody could predict the kind of success that it had. It was Beatlemania in Europe, and I was the receiving end of it. That kind of success is what actors dream about. And I, and I was getting it. And I, I thought, my God. Um, but you're, you're right in one very important sense. My success was so enormous that people saw me only as Sandokan. Right. And like with Arubovil. Well, in a sense, yeah. Right. Because I, I talked to a director, I said, 
after all the press I'm getting, after all being on every magazine cover, being on every radio station, after the streets being empty when our show is on, why am I not being inundated with offers? And they said, Kabir, you're Sandrakan. We make social and political films, comedies. We can't have Sandrakan walking into it. It'll spoil the film. That's when I wondered, I thought, am I going to be a one-hit wonder in the country of my greatest success? So I realized I had to move beyond. That was one of the reasons I pushed on to Hollywood. And then working in Hollywood, doing the Bond film, doing other things there, Bold and Beautiful, uh, and other films, Ashanti with Michael Caine. And all these films came to Italy. And in the end, I did so many Italian films that I ended up being knighted by the Italian Republic for my services and my lifetime. I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. I should also let uh, listeners know that there was a point where the name registration office in, in Italy had a problem because every parent wanted to name a child Kabir and there is no Kerr sound in, in Italian. Which K, is, like, which alphabet is K doesn't exist, yeah. But, alphabet K does. Yeah, but not, I mean, not every parent, but those there are people that came to me complaining, saying, we want you to call our son Kabir, but there's, there's no K. You know, uh, but I do know some boys in Italy who are called Kabir. In fact, son of a good friend of mine is called Kabir. I don't know how he got registered, but the majority uh, couldn't because K doesn't exist. They use the CH instead of the K. Fascinating. You know, I'm going to take you back again to Bombay. And of course, there are your Hollywood years which obviously are very different from the way it would be for an actor to go and try and work in the US. Because right now, I, one gets a sense that there is a huge population of, of uh, children of migrants uh, who moved in the 60s and 70s. And because that population exists, there can be roles written for that population, keeping them in mind, which is clearly not the case when you moved uh, to pursue acting in, in Hollywood. Would that be correct to say, Kaveh? That is very correct, because when I went there, the biggest obstacle I faced is they weren't writing roles for Indians. Mm. And it was uh, very difficult to find employment. So I had to diversify, I had to say, okay, I'm not just there to play Indian roles. Fortunately, I, I look like a person who could be many nationalities. Mm. And I just became sort of foreigner in, in Hollywood films. So in Ashanti, I played a Tuareg tribesman in um, The Bold the Beautiful, which I did for almost a year, I played Moroccan Prince Omar. It was only in the James Bond film, Octopussy, mm. where I was actually cast for what I am, an Indian and a Punjabi. And it was a real high doing a Bond film, being the first Indian actor to shoot a Bond film and be shooting it in India. That was a real thrill for me. Today, it is easier for Indian actors to find roles abroad but it is never easy. This is not an easy business. Okay. Therefore, I salute, doubly salute, the kind of success that Priyanka Chopra has had, mm. because she did it on with her skill, with her strategy, with everything that it took. But it's never easy, even though more roles are being written. Mm. But by the same token, there are more candidates for it. You're listening to Bombay Film Story with Mayank Shekhar. You know, when you when you have a lot of friends, these are people you you made staying in Bombay. Um, and of course, the Italian stardom happens, but thereafter you move to Hollywood, which can be a lonely place, perhaps for someone who's starting from scratch. Because that's really roughly what you were trying to do. Did you feel homesick? Did you feel like coming back to Bombay? <clears throat> there's a Juhu gang here. There's, you know, there's a life that you left behind. When I left India, I always knew I'd come back to India. Mm. 
Because India is part of my DNA. It's part of my what I grew up with. It's what I want to be part of. It's this country I care about the most. It's problems the most. It's where I feel home. Mm. And I knew I was going abroad, but I always planned to come back. And also, if I really felt homesick, I'd just catch a plane and come. Now, my children were growing up here before they came and joined me in America for high school and later my son for his college at Carnegie Mellon. So India was always home. That sense of home never left me. But living abroad for all those years can be a very lonely road for acts because no matter what, you are the minority. Mm. You are the minority, you're the stranger in a strange land. And you have to find work as best as you can. I did it by diversifying my nationality. Mm. Um, other actors have done it by making films in their own countries that made waves in America and then going to Hollywood. All the big stars, foreign stars in Hollywood at the time had become stars by doing something in their own countries before they came. So there was um, Sonia Braga of Brazil. There was um, Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz from uh, Spain, who'd done all the Almodovar films. Uh, there was Rutger Hauer, who'd done brilliant work in Holland. There was Ben Kingsley, who'd done Gandhi, which is a British film. So I was trying to make my way up the ranks, which is a much harder road to go. And I must say, I did a lot of work in Hollywood, but it never made me a star in Hollywood. I was a working actor. I was known but I wasn't a star in Hollywood. Stardom happened for me the biggest in, in Europe. And of course, people in India know me, how big or small a star I am, that's for them to decide. But they all know me, they love me, they respect me. And uh, India's home. Those formative years when you were when you were in Bombay, uh, and because I want to come back to Bombay, uh, we keep going abroad, we keep coming back uh, to, to your city, to my city, and to Juhu. In fact, that's where you are. Uh, the sense I get is also of the Bohemian times was that there were like, say, let's say there were two camps, uh, if I can put it that way, there was the part that was hardcore Bollywood and there was the part that was looking, that's the sense I get from this conversation, the slightly more countercultural, slightly, you know, looking to push the envelope, as you put it. This is also the camp that was trying to do <clears throat> experiment with new things, even in their own lives, uh, Kabir. For instance, the fact that you were uh, in a live-in relationship in, in Bombay, would, was that a very big deal uh, back in the day? And of course, later on, you got married to Pratima Bedi. Was that a very big deal uh, or was this just not so much for the, no, no, it for was, the world it around you? It, it was a big deal in the 1960s for uh, an unmarried couple to be living together publicly. Hmm. was uh, scandalous. Newspaper articles were printed, not newspaper, magazine articles were printed on us. They lived together without being right. married. This was news. And today people wouldn't care. I mean, lots of people live together. That was pushing the envelope in those times. And um, I have explored this very carefully in my book and, and talked about what it took to lead a very unconventional life uh, with Pratima and all the drama and excitement that implied. You know, I can, I've given you sort of broad brush strokes of my life, mm. but the journey that I've shared in my book is an emotional one. It's called The Emotional Life of an Actor. Mm. So the, my book is an immersive experience. It's, it's, uh, it's entertaining, it's informative, it's, it takes you there. My life story is, is, it lies in the 
actual nuts and bolts of what happened to me and the dramas all that involved and the tumultuous roller coaster that my life has been in terms of my successes, tragedies, triumphs, failures, strengths and weaknesses. But even events, Kabir, uh, uh, if you look at what would be quote-unquote controversial events and not necessarily uh, in this particular case from your own life but of lives that are connected to yours. Like for instance an iconic image from the time would be uh, Pratima Bedi uh, streaking. Uh, mm-hmm. what, was that a big moment? Is, I, mean, I mean, we read about it now, but was it like an earth-shattering moment even for you? And how was it received? <clears throat> the fact that you know, she, was, she shot perhaps for a magazine uh, at the time, was that was that something? Did you actually visit an editor's office uh, to blast them uh, because they mm-hmm. published that picture? Did that happen? No, that didn't happen. No, it, it suddenly came as a shock to me and then, you know, uh, how I reacted to that, etc. is in my book. But... Uh, we know Mehta said I, I, I threatened him. I confronted Vinod. I said, Vinod, what is this? You know, this never happened. He said, uh, maybe I was mistaken on that. You know, uh, maybe I got it wrong. Um, because he couldn't say to me that he, I had done that when I hadn't. Uh, I would remember it. He would remember it. But I guess, you know, um, it's the fact that he invented, I guess, for whatever reasons. Well, because that's my memory of uh, Lucknow Boy, which is the memoir that Vinod Mehta wrote, and we, where he wrote extensively about how you'd confronted him in his office because he decided to publish those images. You're telling me that actually never happened. You should have asked him to, to issue an apology, I, did, I guess. I did, I did, okay. I did. And yeah, and he said, well, maybe I got it wrong. Um, he just flopped it up. Maybe it, he, just, he just brushed it aside. And I knew that he, that he could say, but I don't want to diss Vinod Mehta because he's a great journalist. He had that some staggering yes. achievements. He blazed new trails. So let's not, you know, mm. diss a man for, for right. a small uh, oversight yeah. or exaggeration. But that was certainly huge. People said, how can you live with a woman who runs publicly naked? All these things I, I had to face. I don't want to get to the details of all the, because there were many, many painfully difficult issues I had to confront and decide in my relationship with Prathma. There were moral dilemmas. There were life choices. There were things that could have ended our relationship at any point. So how a normal marriage evolves, eventually evolves or becomes um, an open marriage, all that is in my book. What it takes, what, how do you feel in that? Uh, what results from it? I, I don't want to get into the details here, but right. these are the issues that my book talks about. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know, and I don't know how many people have actually attempted that as an experiment. Most people are either together or they're not. But when you're in that, in that, in that gray zone, where it's it's love and possession has nothing to do with it. Does that screw your head or that's something that one can eventually get used to, Kabir? I'm not going to discuss that, Shekhar. Okay. I'm not going to give away the crown jewels of my book in a soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to get to another event and this also <laughs> has uh, more to do with the person you were with uh, and became a hugely controversial event with, uh, with, with your wife, Nikki Bedi. And then, you know, there's a... Sh- 
show that happened and i distinctly remember watching it as a child and, and what an uproar that caused with with the i think what was the first episode of the show uh nikki tonight if i'm not mistaken and you know something was said about mahatma gandhi <laughs> and that's it the whole country was up in flames do you do you recall that as something that really shook you equally in that sense well, it shook nikki and me um i was right. shooting in los angeles for the bold and beautiful mm. nikki had to stay back because she got this wonderful break to do the show called Nikki Tonight which is going to be Star TV's main show and right. she was brilliant and one night on a in a particular program a show crowd Kavi was there in just leading gay rights activist mm. and Nikki asked him she said you know um why is it that you um have not risen to becoming one of the biggest editors in town like all your contemporaries and she was going to basically leading up to the fact that maybe he was discriminated against because he was gay mm. he answered the question by saying 20 years ago i wrote a story in the illustrated weekly of india where i called gandhi a terrible name mm. and kushwan singh published it and i got into a lot of trouble mm. what he called gandhi in that article was then repeated on television and became the headlines right gandhi abused on nikki tonight show demonstrations on the streets questions in parliament threats to her life star tv just yanked the show and nikki had to fly out to los angeles and rebuild her career from there so i'm not going to repeat what ashok rao kavi said for fear that your show will get yanked off the air right, right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can read it in my book again uh, to do with you but actually to do with your partner uh, kabir and this has to do uh, of course with parveen babi and you guys were together for many years uh, this would be this would be when you were the italian superstars when you were in a relationship with parveen babi you could sense that maybe she wasn't in 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 the greatest of you know mental health uh, or certainly not the fittest uh, mentally you you saw glimpses of that uh, and and do you think that it became uh, worse over the years do you think that's what happened uh, you know given that you you've been with her for so long kabir you know, parveen was um, very sensitive very beautiful very intelligent very perceptive girl great fun to be with in many many ways but there was the shadow that was cast on the relationship by episodes increasing episodes that would take over and and most of this happened at the height of my european success mm. so i had to deal on one hand with the euphoria of success and the other hand deal with the extreme problems as having in the relationship because of episodes like that and i knew that she had to be treated i think my insistence on her being treated was one of the things that caused her to leave me in the end because she had an absolutely paranoia about doctors because she felt that if the industry came to know they would drop her like a hot potato it was survival for her she couldn't let people know that she had these problems and she wanted to keep it secret and she felt with a paranoia that doctors would also talk about it particularly in india it's a very complex subject and i've written about it with as much sensitivity as i could but because i've been equally harsh myself i'm able to call out what other people did as well and and share that uh, honestly because my story is not it's it's my truth it's my story it's what happened in my life 
But it relates certainly to the life of Parveen Bhavi. It was a very important relationship in my life. And all that happened, all the turbulence that happened, all the dramas that happened in the course of that relationship. Let me give you one story from there. Uh, and there are many. When I went to Italy for the time of Sandokan, Parveen was a bigger star than me in, in India. And suddenly I became this huge star in Europe. And we were invited to dinner by Gina and Laura Brigida. And Parveen and I were both invited. And Parveen had already been felt a little slighted because she wasn't the same center of attention that she was in India. And when we met Gina at her home, Gina sort of talked to me and introduced me to her friends, etc., and sort of ignored Parveen a bit. Then Gina took us to a private dinner at a restaurant where the manager of Air India, Cecil de Mello, was there, and Gina was there, I was there, Parveen was there. And Gina said, arrives at the restaurant, said, let's dance. I danced with her. I'm thinking, my God, I'm dancing Gina Laura Brigida. This was, there were only two big international divas from Italy, Gina Laura Brigida and Sophie Loren. And here as a guest is Gina Laura Brigida dancing with her on the floor. And uh, we went back to the table. And finally, Gina deigns to talk to Parveen. And she said, and you, my dear, what are you doing? Following the star? And I was gobsmacked. And here was my host, star. And she'd attacked the woman that I loved. What was I to do? Before I could think of anything, Parveen came back with a razor-sharp answer. She said, no, my dear. I'm with my man, because I have a man. And she said, oh, she's clever, very clever, this one. And Parveen said, let's dance. Got up. And dance meant not, it was like a formal foxtrot, you know, band playing, dark, nice dance floor. And on the dance floor, we start dancing. Parveen says, I'm leaving. I said, You're leaving the dance floor. She said, no, I'm leaving the restaurant. I said, you can't do that. We guess of Gina. She said, I don't give a shit. I don't like her and I'm leaving. This puts you in a hell of a dilemma. What do you do? Do you walk out in Italy's biggest star? Or do you stay with the woman that you love? And I tried to persuade her. She said, she may be important to your career, baby. She's not important to mine. And I was walking back to the table wondering, what am I going to do? Praveen leaves and I, I stay. Why I, I leave? So Praveen picked up a bag. I said, fact is, Gina insulted the woman I love. So I bent down to Gina and said, Gina, I'm terribly sorry, but we have to leave. Uh, no, but why? Dinner is coming. I said, Gina, tell me sorry, we have to leave. Thank you for hospitality. And I left with Parveen. And that was the end of my dinner with the great Gina Laura Brigida. One of the many stories in my book. That is quite sad, I have to say. Is that is that a common thing, though? I mean, if you are a star in one part of the world and you're uh, you're with your you know you're with someone who is a much much huger star in another part of the world, is is that a common thing? Is, is that is that natural in some form, uh, especially when you've tasted fame of those levels? I don't know. I mean, obviously, stars um, have egos. Mm. Uh, they've earned the right to an ego in a sense, right. um, and they're objects of great adulation. Uh, they're used to having their way. They're not used to being crossed. They're not used to being sidelined. They're not used to being pushed around. And suddenly, if that starts happening, it becomes very unsettling. And then if you add to that dimension of a certain amount of mental instability, mm. it magnifies. It causes unbelievable reactions. 
And I was very fearful of that. I thought, my God, if Parveen gets on the warpath, anything can happen. Towards uh, the later part of her life, I remember we used to read interviews of hers, but it did not seem like she was she was quite out there. But the press was still publishing her uh, her statements, very paranoid statements, uh, all kinds of things that she said uh, that that Parveen Babu said. Did you think that the perhaps the press uh, wasn't uh, that sensitive, was not aware of exactly what she was going through before publishing those those interviews? Well, I think there was a certain amount of insens- insensitivity on the part of the press. But what you're talking about is what happened much later in life when Parveen, after all her, after disappearing from India for all those years, came back to India yeah. and then accused Amitabh Bachchan of being a drug smuggler, of being a CIA agent, of being all kinds of things. The press just printed it because they got lovely headlines mm. and they didn't allow for the fact that they knew that she had mental issues and she didn't portray it in that way. It's just like Parveen Babi says that Amitabh Bachchan is this, that and the other. And it was sad because, you know, the, 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 she, was, she was ridiculed for it and she was hurting from it. And um, just after that, I, I, had, I, I met her at the Holiday Inn. It was a very poignant, sad final meeting that I had with her. But all the things she said, she obviously said in a state when her, her paranoia and her delusion herself had gone out of control. When I say out of control, she was still functional. Mm. She was still doing interior decoration for people. She was still uh, functional. She was still able to swim. She was still able to uh, order meals at restaurants. This was something that she lived with all her life. This, the inner side that, that needed protection, needed sanctuary, needed a womb, needed a protector. And the outer side, which is a mask that she knew how to wear to function socially. In terms of the years that you've been in Bombay, uh, 50 plus years, if I'm not mistaken. These are people you met uh, when you first came in. They, you know, Some of them you mentioned, Shekhar Kapoor, uh, Mahesh Bhatt. Um, of course, is, is not around, is no more. But when you look, when you meet them now, how do you look at how their lives sort of uh, panned out <laughs> over the years? Like, like, take me through Shekhar Kapoor, for instance. You guys, were you friends in, in college? Were you together yeah, uh, back in the we, were, we were together at St. Stephen's. And um, we were together in, uh, uh, in Mumbai. Uh, in fact, the first film Shekhar did was a film called Ish Kish Kish uh, with Devanand, which I was also in. And Shekhar wanted to be an actor. And to while his time away, he started making ad films and then fell in love with making films and then became a director. He was uh, the case of a man who wanted to become an actor but became a director. I was a case of man who wanted to be a director, but became an actor. Uh, but we've known each other all our lives. We've been in and out of each other's homes in Mumbai, in London, in Los Angeles. We've always stayed in touch and we've always uh, sort of had parallel lives internationally in different ways on different continents. And he's a very creative guy. He's a, he's a philosopher as much as he is a director. So we also share that spiritual, philosophical uh, side of us, uh, which is why uh, we were able to be such good friends. What about Mahesh Bhatt? Mahesh was also very philosophical in his nature. But he, he's written, he, he made he, his first film with you, Kabir, and then he had hmm. a full like length career thereafter. How do you sort of see his life, how it panned out from making his first film with you in the lead? Well, Mahesh has had a remarkable career. I mean, he's made so many films 
And he wanted to be a director. He became a director. He made many, many films. Uh, he's launched many stars. He's, he's always made the films he wanted to make. And he found the formula to make them. Mm-hmm. Don't make very big budget films. Make them within reasonable budgets. Let everyone make money. And uh, make enough of them. Everyone makes lots of money. At the same time, he had lots of creative satisfactions. Um, but he always had this very philosophical side to him because mm-hmm. while I was listening to Jiddu Krishnamurti, he fell in love with a guru called Yuji Krishnamurti, mm-hmm. who was equally nihilistic in the sense of saying denying all systems and had a razor sharp mind, a man of great intelligence and intellect, who I met or impressed by. So Mahesh is also as much a philosopher. But you know what happens in film? is that when you're working together, you all meet, etc., you all become part of one family. The minute that film is over, you then join other film groups and join other film families and know them. And then that film ends, you move on to the next film group. Generally, it's work that brings people together. So, And Mahesh is also not much of a socializer. He's not the kind of chef who just likes to meet for chit-chat. You know? So unless you're particularly want to discuss a script or work with him. But was he, was he like that in the early years? Because he used to be yeah. quite a heavy drinker in the early years, yeah. which would mean a lot of socializing mm. too, right? He's, he's a teetotaler now and has been for many, many years. Right. Those days, he would drink himself silly and pass out on the floor of Beach House. There were all kinds of excesses we were both part of at the time. Right. Okay, last question. And uh, this, is, this sort of uh, sums up so many years of your life. Uh, we've course, only looked at one aspect of it uh, predominantly, which is the Bombay film story. But uh, as I said right at the beginning, there's so many careers you've had, uh, mm-hmm. so many choices you've made, uh, so many continents you worked at. When you look back right now, Kabir, what is the one thing that you can say for sure you regret? I know, I know it's a tough one, but it's something <clears throat> that we have to think about as one thing that you regret. What would that be? You know, we all have regrets. When we look back, you think, I could have done that better, I could have done that better, I should have done that better. Um, you look at it with the wisdom of today. And that's unfair because at that time, you thought you were making the best decision you could. Right. Of course, we have all mistakes. Of course, we have all regrets. And not just one, but many. Right. Um, but the important thing is not to dwell on those regrets. Remembrances, yes. Recalling remembrances of wonderful things that happened even of tragic things that happened. Remembrances are important. Regrets, live with it, mourn it, move on. There's so much more to do in life. There are worlds to conquer. You cannot spend them thinking about which is my biggest regret. I don't do that. But I do believe, and I've always believed, that the best is yet to come. Absolutely. Kabir, really the best is is yet to come. But thank you so much for remembering your story. It's, it is really, really uh, a fascinating one that I'm so glad people are reading and, and that you wrote. And Mank, I'm so grateful to you for firstly, reading my book. Secondly, loving my book. And thirdly, telling so many people about my book. I cannot tell you how much that means to a debut writer to have produced this book and get that kind of appreciation, especially from a person like you. Thank you for that, Mank.